Greetings, friends and family. It is the weekend of Sunday, June the 20th. It is Father's Day weekend, Father's Day. So we want to say happy Father's Day to all of our fathers out there. And I want to say especially happy Father's Day to my father, Herman Yon, who listens to us when he's not here, listens to us in Rock Hill, South Carolina. Happy Father's Day, Dad. I love you. We continue looking at the book of Hebrews, the letter of Hebrews written to those Hebrew Christians um, in the early church. And we continue picking up right where we left off last week, looking at chapter 8, verses 6 through 13, um, this idea of, of really a new constitution, if you will. You see, the cross is made for the whole person, for the whole man. The, the, the cross can be understood on three levels of life. There's the understanding of the cross on a physical level. It's pain, it's anguish, the awful thirst of it. And there's an understanding of the cross on an emotional level. And it's a moving experience to think about what occurs in the minds and in the hearts of those connected with the cross, and especially in Jesus's mind. But the real meaning of the cross never comes to us except as we move into the third realm, which is the spirit. Our minds or emotions are incapable of explaining it on this level. We are shut up to what God says it means. But on that level, that third level, we discover there is a marvelous meaning and insight on life granted to us in the cross. And in the next section, the writer of Hebrews begins to unfold to us the results of this sacrifice. The first part reveals the provision in in the cross of a new arrangement for living, for life. And if there is a new arrangement, well, that suggests, of course, that there must have been an old arrangement. For a brief moment, we must look at that predicted failure of the law, the old arrangement. Reading Hebrews chapter 8, verses 6 through 9. But in fact, the ministry Jesus had received, has received, is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one since the new covenant is established on better promises. For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt, because they did not remain faithful to my covenant, and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. The law of Moses was the first covenant, the Ten Commandments. Now, there's nothing wrong with the Ten Commandments, and there's still nothing wrong with them. The fault was and is with us, with people. God did not find fault with the law, but verse 8 says he finds fault with them, with the people, because they misunderstood the purpose of the law, as men and women all over the world today misunderstand the purpose of the Ten Commandments. The people of that day thought God wanted them to keep these Ten Commandments as the only way they could please him. They, they felt he demanded this rigid, careful obedience and observance, rather, of the Ten Commandments. But what they did not understand, though God pointed this out to them many times, was that God never expected them to keep it. He knew that they could not. He did not give it to them to be kept because he knew they could not keep it. He gave it to them to show them that they could not keep it. So they would be ready then 
to receive a Savior. But with presumptuous confidence, they tried to keep it. And when they could not, as of course God knew they could not, they pretended to keep it. Just as we do today. You say we set up a standard for ourselves or accept the standard of others around us. And we honestly try to keep it. But we cannot because fallen man simply cannot keep moral law. But rather than admit it, I begin to cover it up. We lower the requirements or excuse our failing by sort of shrugging it off and saying, well, everybody does it. Or, or maybe we argue that it, it is the intent to keep it that, that ought to be accepted. Or we promise to try harder and, and so on and so on. It's exhausting. And this is what happened with Israel. They pretended to keep the law and deceived themselves. And so they sank lower and lower in the moral strata. And at the moment of the lowest low, when they had sunk, when they had so sunk into the darkness of, of pagan ignorance around them that they were worshiping heathen gods and were ready to be carried captive into Babylon, God sent a prophet to them named Jeremiah. And through Jeremiah, he informed them of a permanent program that was yet to come. This program had always been available to them by faith, but one day, God said, would be made evident to the nation by sight. It is that program that we look at now. Hebrews 8, 10 through 13, reading from the NIV. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive them their wickedness and remember their sins no more. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. This is a covenant or an agreement made between the Father and and the Son. It is not made between us and God, or between Israel and God. It is wholly between the Father and Son. But if anyone be in Christ, everything in this covenant is available to them. Someday Israel, as a nation, will be in Christ. And when they are, these words will be fulfilled for Israel. As Jeremiah predicted, but right now to Jew and Gentile alike, to any individual on the face of the earth who is willing to count the costs to be in Christ, to let Christ live in them, this agreement is valid. Now notice there are four provisions of this new constitution, this new covenant. God says, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. So right there is the answer to the problem of human motivation. Have we discovered that the problem in our life is not uncertainty as to what is right? We've known that a long time. The problem is not wanting to do it. You see, it's a problem of motivation. So the new arrangement, this new constitution, this new covenant makes provision for that. We are to look to Jesus when we are confronted with the thing we do not want to do. When we need a, a shove, a nudge, we are to say, Jesus, you've, 
you've promised to write your laws in my mind and and on my heart that I will that I may will to do what you want me to do. Those, those who have tried it, discover this works. There is a new motive. There's a new motor. These words, or these come from the same word, by the way, a new power to do what ought to be done. Then he says, I will be their God and they shall be my people. What an answer to the search for identity, to the hunger to belong to someone. Here's the answer to the aching question of the human heart of who am I anyway? And what can I identify with or as? And God says, you will be identified with me forever. I will be your God and you will be my people. Then there is this, this, the promise. They shall not teach everyone his fellow or everyone his brother saying, know the Lord for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. So here's the answer to that sigh of humanity for a hero. There is in the human heart desperate need for a hero. We want to look up to someone. We want to know some great one personally. And God says, I will satisfy that in your life. You will know me. Then the last thing, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities, their sins, and I will remember their sins no more. This is the answer to that universal sense of condemnation. You know, sometimes I say, I never know where I stand with God. We might feel like that. But God says if we are looking to the great high priest who is ministering to us all the effects of his sacrifice, this is not a problem because he has written it down in in no uncertain words, there is no, there's therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8, verse 1. None. He says he is always for us. He is never against us. It does not mean he ignores sin, but he says, I will be merciful toward it. When we acknowledge it there, is no reproach. There's no rehash. He never gets historical dredging up the past. God does not do that. Now, all of this is continuously available, and that is the joy of it. It's always available from within, ministered to us constantly, if we will have it. Amen, and God bless. In closing today, I want to read Jude 24 through 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the pre- his presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen.